Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Monday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. And I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Pretty well. Did something a little crazy different today. Instead of waiting until half an hour before the pod, cramming as much research as I could, inevitably not getting as much as I'd like to have done, and then jumping right into the pod with you, started around 5.30, got super deep into all the different stat places you can go on the ATP website. Highly recommend uh, if anyone has an hour to kill. And then got 30 minutes to just chill and listen to music before joining you on this lovely Monday afternoon, evening. So feeling pretty nice, relaxed, happy, excited to get this pod out. We got a lot to cover. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Nice to have a weekend to recharge and a short week for me. And then uh, going on on a little bit of a family vacation for the long weekend. Looking forward to that. So no podcast for at least a week after tonight, but we have lots and lots to talk about. I am still buzzing after the sports weekend. It was quite the spectacle in a variety of different places and some big storylines for us to really cover. And yeah, some awesome stuff happening. Uh, We're going to talk, of course, UFC 271 on Saturday. We're going to talk Super Bowl. We are going to talk basketball kind of do our best nba crunch time impressions zip around the league there big trade today in the nhl yes we will be talking nhl surprise and then of course our big man uh on campus felix with uh, a big win in rotterdam so lots and lots to talk about um so max i will leave the floor to you here for the massive event that was saturday night tell us what you saw I saw a massive UFC pay-per-view. I saw a massive event and I saw a fight that lived up to all of that hype between Israel Adesanya and Robert Whitaker. The rematch of the fight that saw Izzy capture the middleweight title almost two and a half years ago. Uh, did the breakdown for that Thursday, had been incredibly excited for it ever since, really not knowing what we were going to get. And it lived up to all my expectations, all my hype, in still a surprising and subversive yet completely unsurprising way. How did this happen? Let me explain. Um, The surprise really came in in the first round. If you remember my breakdown, I talked about how Rob was really frantic on the feet, constantly charging, and that one thing we saw was Izzy didn't really kick at his legs that much because of that franticness from Rob. Two things. I do think Izzy has gotten much, much better at the calf kick since that first fight. You kind of saw him mentally like that lightning bolt or light bulb, excuse me, moment for him in the Romero fight when he realized like, hey, with my frame and distance, I can just kind of kick the calf and not expose myself to too much trouble, especially if the opponent just wants to stand in front of me and do that kind of mirroring fainting thing with me. Like I can out faint him and find the calf and it doesn't take many to start landing damage. And it was the Costa fight, the Vittori fight after the Whitaker fight where we really saw that even if he had thrown the occasional one before. So two things, 
uh, Rob being really forward pressure that first fight and is he really improving on the calf kicks? Maybe no surprise that that's really the first thing we notice in this fight. Uh, as Rob comes out with none of that pressure, that franticness, that manic, let me like duck and swing and try and do my best to hit you in the face energy that caught it, got him caught and clipped twice in their last fight. And so that, of course, leads to Izzy finding the calf. And the one that looked like it really hurt wasn't even quite a calf kick. He kind of got like right at the knee, but behind it. And you just saw Rob wince instantly. You heard the kick land and you saw him fight different, trying to not get anywhere close to that kick again. And that led to us seeing him get dropped, which it was really, oh my, here we go again. Oh, like three minutes in Rob is dropped. He's landing even less offensively than we did the first fight. Izzy looked like Anderson Silva ask, which is so wonderful to see after the middleweight division in the UFC was its marquee division for years with an untouchable, undefeatable challenger, the immovable object, so to speak. Um, we have, Izzy seems like that again. He seemed like that against Paulo Costa. He seemed like that against Marvin Vittori. And he seemed like that in the first round against Robert Whitaker, beating up his leg, not getting touched by anything Rob threw at him, hurting and dropping Rob. It was honestly kind of terrifying. It, he seemed unbeatable. Rob looked discouraged. I really try not to let the commentary get to me, but the commentary was really hyping up that narrative. I felt like I was seeing it too. I'm questioning that now because Rob, an amazing challenger, he comes out in the second round though, and he doesn't, he slowly puts it together. He finds a footwork style, a way of moving, keeps up with Izzy's feints enough to not fall for another one of those brutal, brutal heavy leg kick starts to get in and out a little more, find some touches on the feet. Most of all, he gets a takedown, which that's always the game plan to beat Izzy, take him down. But Izzy gets right back up. It seems like it, it seems like a really close round. It, it was tough to score it, but you just felt from a narrative perspective, okay, it's a fight now. Like Rob looked a minute away from being finished after that first round, and he found himself in the second and fought a close round. Same thing in the third, but I think Izzy got back to the leg kicks a little. Rob lands another takedown. Izzy right back up. The fourth round was really interesting to me. I'm going to talk about this a bit later because the way Izzy gets up, um, he really leaves his neck exposed for someone to try and jump on it and throw a choke. Easier said than done, of course, but it was there twice in the second and third round, and Rob saw it. He tried it in the fourth round off his takedown. Didn't get too, too close, but it was interesting to see, and I scored that kind of nicely for Rob, getting the takedown, getting the back control, getting the submission attempt. So I really liked the fourth Rob round for Rob. He was finding his rhythm in this like defensive frantic hurt licking his wounds manner so it sounds weird to say but he was getting more comfortable as the fight went on he was getting his timing a little better finding the moments to jump in and out on izzy but not capitalizing on them so frequently as to leave the counter too much there it was just a fight 
Izzy in all his striking distance management, playing high, high 40 level chess, champion level glory, and Rob the challenger, the athletic freak, the Spartan spirit, trying everything he's accumulated in his mixed martial arts career to figure out what he can do to not get picked apart by this godly striker and even land on him, um, trying to overcome that brutal seven inch reach disadvantage. Um, the feints, the movement, the cage circling, the reaction time, it was just so fascinating. It felt like five minutes had passed from the time the fight started and we were in the fifth round. It was more of the same. By then, uh, so the commentary called it Rob's best round. I thought he did well in the second, fourth, and fifth. It seemed like Izzy had a bit of more of the gas taken out in the fifth gave a little less and that let what rob did show a little more even if he didn't land anything necessarily more effective than he had been landing before and honestly when the judge it came time for the judges scorecards i hit mute i just wanted to see whose hand get raised um i don't love the suspense of that drawn out call i wasn't shocked it was izzy i mean the commentary had it really teed up for that i I felt like it was such a close fight to score. But I really, for this segment, just wanted to focus on what an amazing fight it was. Um, like I said, Izzy is such a dominant force as a champion. He that His ability to create distance, maximize the reach advantage he has almost over everyone at middleweight, um, to first keep himself out of any and all danger and then slowly dominate the distance, slowly find his timing, slowly set up the strikes. It, it just seems untouchable. The, the same way Cyril Gaon is just like, how are you slow heavyweights going to hit a guy like me? Is he kind of much more impressive because the guys he's fighting are just so much more athletically terrifying in terms of the acceleration they can generate even if the force isn't quite the same as that heavyweight i and rob like i think he said it best in his post-fight interview were the two best guys in the middleweight division the two of them have taken out six of the other top 10 contenders in the division in each of their last three fights this was by far the closest tightest fight Izzy's been in at middleweight. Um, it, he started off the fight looking so dominant, so terrifying, so untouchable. And by the end of the fifth round, he looked like a mortal. So Rob, as the challenger, challenged him. The biggest hole I think he showed is on the takedowns. Izzy, he does such a good job preventing control once he gets taken down, kind of sprawling with his long frame. And wherever the opponent covers and tries to put pressure down, he gets away from, anchors his point, another spot in his body in open space and uses that open space to create leverage and spring up. But what that means is he's often showing his back because he's not setting up the takedown um, get up in a way that keeps his back and submission attempts safe. He's counting on like the speed of that defense being still in scramble off the takedown to prevent his opponent from getting off anything offensively. And against Rob, it worked. Um, is he just back to his feet right away? It makes me really want to see a challenger who has the jujitsu to just spring that rear naked choke in when Izzy gets up. 
but it's a huge ask from a challenger because you need a guy who's comfortable enough on the feet to hang with Izzy and pick the right moment for a takedown. Because if you don't set it up with strikes, if you don't find your moment, if you just spam it, the takedown's not going to get to that place. Izzy far too good for that. They have to do all that on the feet, have the takedown athletic ability to get it, which a lot of jujitsu practitioners don't necessarily have. And then they have to have that jujitsu to spring it on the back. So no one comes to mind for me in the middleweight division, but that's really what I'm going to be looking and hoping for from Izzy's next challenger, who in all likelihood will be Jared Cannonier, who also had a wonderful night at the office for his career. And yeah, what a fight. Oh, it was wonderful. I don't know if you heard anything about that. I know you did hear at least one thing about the co-main. Yeah, so just briefly as an outsider, I did see a couple tweets from fighters who believe that this fight may have actually should have gone Whitaker's way. Um, from what I gathered from reading is that if a fight is usually even, you do lean towards the champion, just as yeah. a, a belt is something to be won uh, without a shadow of a doubt. I don't know if you have anything really to comment on there. It's a really common and same and I think is pretty stupid for the most part. That's that you've got to beat the champ to be the champ. And in a sense, that's true. Like no one considers Aljamain Sterling the bantamweight champ of the world because he did not beat the champ, Peter Jan. Jan disqualified himself. Um, but when that saying is applied in the context of like, oh, well, they fought a really close decision that could have gone either way 50-50, so we give it to the champ, King's Court. Like, that's bullshit, and it, it's not an official rule. It's just a trend we notice a lot, and people justify that trend with the saying. Um, a, a lot to call. you can go into on fight scoring, but that is a commonly held view. Um, Interesting. And lots of fighters yes. do hold it. Yes, okay. Interesting. Yes, I did notice the one highlight that did make it around to more of the casual spectators of UFC was a brutally vicious elbow <laughs> from Tuivasa. And of course, everyone loves a good shoey. That always has to make the uh, make the rounds. But poor Derek Lewis, man, he got slumped. Yeah, in his hometown, too, for the second time in a row. <sighs> Yeah, hey. he really takes you through some highs and lows. The Black Beast um, looked so it's he's such a goofy, comical character. It's hard to imagine him being genuinely sad. But I, who wouldn't be genuinely sad getting knocked out in their hometown after like landing your best punch too? It was crazy. The first round, though, Derek Lewis showed levels above Tai Tuivasa's mixed martial arts game. He was gaining the clinch and hitting him with trips. It was wild. And then he had him down. And being on the ground with Derek Lewis near you is one of the most terrifying prospects in the world. And Tai Tuivasa got that full experience. Lewis wound up slammed his fist as hard as he could into Tuivasa's head and Ty just wobbled and got up and then swung. It was insane. Like we've seen that power just be so deadly so many times and Ty just took it and swung back and backed Lewis off. Like 
I don't know what the heavyweight division is in the second round similar sequence where Lewis lands I think it was an uppercut on Tuivasa hurts him tries to swarm maybe lands a few more in the finish up but Ty just ducking swanging and then bangs back he lands a couple to back Lewis up and that elbow was just nasty it's good night Ty calls himself a street fighter. That's when they introduce him or when Bruce Buffer introduces him. They give his record, uh, excuse me, with the prefix of a street fighter with an MMA record of, and that was a street fighter elbow. (laughs) It was just, everyone loves a shoey. Everyone loves even two more. Ty Tuivasa somehow might be next in line for a UFC title shot. If not, he's one win away. I don't understand how, but I love to see it. More of this content, please, UFC. Uh, a wonderful main event, a wonderful co-main event. I'm not going to talk Cannoneer Brunson because this pod is needs, I'm hoping at least one person makes it maybe through most of the pod, and that's not going to happen if I go on about UFC anymore. So, oh, I'll hand the other recap of our show off to you uh, with a guilty confession of I did not watch the Super Bowl. I know the Rams won. So please tell me what happened and how they did it. Yes, sir. Um, Just to preface it a little bit, of course, I did pick the Rams. So Mm -hmm. we'll pat on the back there from the boy. Uh, But I was very, very concerned headed into this game. Uh, we had the Rams being picked by Tim, the Tatman. We had the Rams being picked by Drake. So we did have uh, a couple of curses (laughs) that were up against my pick and the Drake curse applied in one way, but didn't end up affecting the Rams. We will get to that. Uh, but this game, what a moment, what an atmosphere, uh, SoFi stadium rocking it is always weird when uh the super bowl it's 3 30 in la when it starts like it's just a little odd time like there's no other football game in the season that starts at that time so gotta get adjusted a little bit if you're the players and still a little light out too wasn't dark yet but they arrive the stadium's rocking and then the first kickoff of the game goes for a touchback uh not a common thing and from there, it was fun. The first half was really, really fun. Teams were were throwing it out there. Uh, Cooper Cup with a touchdown. Odell with the opening touchdown cashed one of Drake's bets, uh, and he looked pretty unstoppable in space. Like he had came to play for sure. And then on the other side, the Bengals score on a trick play. Joe Mixon. Uh, then our first controversial moment of the Super Bowl starts just at the beginning of the second half. And before I get there, what a halftime show. Um, obviously, I'm, I didn't grow up, we didn't grow up in the heyday of the, the 90s, but can still appreciate a Dr. Dre, an Eminem, a Mary J. Blige, as well as 50 Cent making a surprise appearance. And then, of course, Snoop D-O-double-G himself, uh, he did not smoke on stage so that was pretty shocking if you had that as one of your prop bets. But a really, really fun halftime show. Um, a lot of great songs. Everyone seemed to be loving it. And, and the 
general approval rating afterwards was very surprising because we have seen performers previously like a Travis Scott, like a weekend where the large majority of folks watching the Super Bowl do not approve of that type of halftime show, right? They cater the halftime show to a different demographic, but it really did seem like this one stirred the nostalgia and hit for a lot of the similar audiences. At least there was a larger overlapping in that Venn diagram than we have seen in previous years. So everyone coming off a high and then the Cincinnati Bengals much must have loved the halftime show as well. They come out, T Higgins throws a fist right into Jalen Ramsey's face, knocks him over, catches a 75 yard bomb uh, that probably should have been called back for offensive passive interference. Not the first time the Ram or the referees, pardon me, that's a Freudian slip. <laughs> Not the first time the refs may have been a deciding factor in this game as they are usually. And the Bengals in a good spot, but the Rams don't give up. Uh, uh, late in the game, about six minutes left in the fourth quarter, they are down uh, 20 to 16, and it just became the Cooper Cup show. Like really the last six minutes, last 10 minutes of this football game, the two best players on the field really came through, and that was Cooper Cup and Aaron Donald. They made their presence known, and for Cooper Cup, it was five different catches on that drive, one of them a massive third down conversion for 20 yards over the middle. Uh, then he gets a fourth and one handoff on a jet sweep and converts that for seven yards. And then they're in the end zone, uh, third and goal uh, pass incomplete to Cooper Cup, but the refs throw the flag holding. They get a new set of downs and, and maybe a ticky tack foul, but it was called. And so if you're Cincinnati, you got to reset. I mean, you've been in a tougher spot against teams like Kansas City. And they go to a, a slot fade or a, a out wide fade to Cooper Cup. Burns Eli Apple scores a touchdown. Rams go up three. And then on the other side of the ball, again, Cincinnati, a minute and a half, two timeouts, plenty of time to get into reasonable field goal range for a kicker who has not missed the entire playoffs in Evan McPherson. And they got off to a great start. Hit Chase, hit Higgins. They get to about midfield. And then all of a sudden, it's a three-yard run. It's a missed deep ball. It's uh, a, another run stuffed and it's fourth and one. And the Rams pin their ears back and Aaron Donald gets to the quarterback on fourth and one. Joe flings it, attempts to get it out, uh, goes incomplete and, and the Rams kneel it out and are victorious in the Super Bowl. It was a pretty sloppy second half Obviously, things get tighter as nerves start to really set in about, wow, each play is so incredibly important, but it really shone through. The Super Bowl MVP in Cooper Cup just got open at will. And then, of course, Aaron Donald, top five defensive player of all time in the NFL, makes his impact and really cements himself in that pantheon of great players by getting a Super Bowl and having that great play at the end to seal things. Um, there's this awesome clip going around on the internet where Sean McVay, right before the fourth and one goes into the headset, he says, Aaron Donald's about to make a play. <laughs> and he went and did it. And they're fired up. Donald takes off his helmet, poking at the ring finger. Boys are fired up. Jamar Chase had burned Jalen Ramsey on that play. So if Burrow had even had half a second more, could have been a very different story. And you feel so great for Matthew Stafford 
the Rams went all in. They don't have a first round draft pick until like 2027. Like they have moved all their draft compensation to get guys like uh, Jalen Ramsey, like a Vaughn Miller, like a Odell Beckham, like a Matthew Stafford, right? And a guy who was who put up good stats on a bad team, right? Like your Trey Young type, your Zach Levine type for for <laughs> and people might not like this one, but as of right now, a Connor McDavid type, where you put up a ton of points, you don't necessarily have the wins to back it up in Detroit. And he even had Calvin Johnson, who's one of the top 10 receivers of all time. But the Rams believed in him. They invested the draft capital. They bring him in, and in their first season, he delivers, right? It wasn't a perfect performance by any means, but he got the job done. He was that missing piece, and it pays off for Sean McVay, who came up short four years ago against the Patriots, and this time they get their redemption, get a big win. And on the other side, so tough, man. Like Obviously, Cincinnati, such a young team, so impressive, and you think they'll – they really like heavy favorites to get back in it, but you just never know. This could have been their only shot, right? And for a fan base that has been craving, dying for Super Bowl, they get so close, it must really sting. And you take a look at this AFC, man. Josh Allen's going nowhere. Patrick Mahomes is going nowhere. Justin Herbert's going nowhere. Lamar Jackson's going nowhere. Who knows? Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, maybe one of them signs in the AFC, right? This conference is absolutely loaded, not to mention the Tennessee Titans, who are the one seed amidst all of these great quarterbacks. So if you're Cincinnati, like this might have been it for the next 10 years, right? You you get lucky, you get through uh, a Kansas City team that was beating you 21 to three and a really tough, tough pill to swallow. Um, some questions about the officiating three penalties late in the fourth quarter with two minutes left, but I think there were some calls that could have gone both ways. And in the end, the, the better team wins out here. And the, the biggest players on the field made the best plays at the right time. And uh, the LA Rams now, the city of Los Angeles, three titles in three different sports in the last four years is pretty, pretty impressive stuff um, back on top where, where they've, they've been accustomed to being. Uh, so really fun Super Bowl. Enjoyed that second half immensely, uh, mostly just that fourth quarter. Third quarter was fairly sloppy, but uh, really fun stuff. And now we head into the offseason. We take a deep breath. Football season's finally over. It's quite the grind now with the extra week, uh, but loved it. Absolutely loved it. And shame on you, Max, that you did not catch a minute of it. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I guarantee the three-peat if the Tampa Bay Lightning trade for Connor McDavid tomorrow. So maybe very similar <laughs> to Matthew Stafford in that aspect. Um, second of all, yes, uh, had some friends in town this weekend, none of whom were particularly interested in watching the Super Bowl and given the choice between seeing friends who I might not see for months in months um i chose the friends and i knew if i tried to watch the super bowl i couldn't do two things at the same time as so i we had curling on and we had uh snowboarding big air on and nice. that is the first nice. and only olympic talk we've had on this podcast really <laughs> uh, not the end of our weekend recaps though because we got one more big storyline to hit congratulations to Felix Auger Aliasim on his first ever 
ATP cool. level singles title, doing it in a 500 event, not too shabby at all. Breaks the finals curse. It's so wonderful to see after playing in eight different finals and not winning a single set, he takes out the tournament's top seed, number four in the world, <laughs> Stefano Stitsipas. He's top, I think he's four. I think it goes Djokovic, Shaw, Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas. Oh, can look this up as I talk. <laughs> um and it's a curse, right? We've seen this not just in finals from Felix, but he—he's in some of these events, he's gone up against dark horses in the finals. Number four, we have confirmed on City Pass. A shout out to my memory for these sorts of things. <laughs> but as I was saying with Felix, he goes up against these dark horses in other finals, guys he should beat, and he just chokes. He doesn't serve as well as he can serve. He's putty in their hands on the return. Uh, he just goes into a shell and he can't dig himself out of the hole he gets into early on. And it's never a match. Completely flipped the script on that in this one. Taking the very first game, Pass served the first game of the match, a break for Felix, and he just never looked back. He did a really nice job attacking the backhand of Tsitsipas, not just when he had a second serve to attack, when he was able to extend it to a rally, but mostly on his serve. And it, like it's such a marathon oh, to win the first break of a tennis match, the first set, excuse me, the first game of the match, and then no... In theory, you have a chance to go ahead that set, but now you've got to go serve six straight sets and you can't really fuck up more than once or twice in a mat, in a game. And if you do, you've got to bail yourself out. It's a lot easier when it somehow goes neck and neck and then you're four for four and you pull out. And it's just like, okay, I just have to win one, win two more. But if you're a player with shaky confidence who's struggled in the past, collapsing, it's kind of a terrifying prospect to be one up nothing a break at the start of a match. But Felix flipped it. He took with it. He run with it, ran with it. He said, hey, I can do this. If I play my top level tennis, this set is mine. And that puts me in better position than I've ever been in in my career to win my first singles event. And that's what he did. He served so fantastic going 16 for 16 on his first serves that went in, not giving up a break point that set. He didn't get another break back, but he was far more aggressive attacking Pass on his serve than Stefanos was attacking him. And that first set just gave him more confidence. We saw a positive growth cycle. We saw him go up 5-1 in the second set with a double break, attacking the backhand so beautifully. Uh, it is sometimes a weak point of Stefanos's, and it was here today, not his best backhand work for sure. Everything else, though, I think was fine from him. Felix just played better and pushed him into a box the line painting from him was just absurd you were expecting him to like pelt it down the line with a forehand have stissy pass hit a weak cross court that still makes felix run and then somehow in stride like catch the backhand and paint a line with force for winners constantly who's that Super, super high level of play in rallies on his serve, attacking all match. 
he finally put it all together. Oh, he played at a super high level that he can play at when he really dials in, and he played all match at that level. We talk often about the big three, their ability to go down one set, two set, not lose faith, and keep just dig in, dial into that perfect zone of tennis where somehow down to nothing, they shake their opponent because their opponent knows they're just not going to make a mistake and they have to beat them. And that's the level of play Felix had all match. It's so great to see with this curse broken, with a pretty good run on the Australian that only saw him lose to the finalist with the ATP, excuse me, ATP Cup in the bank with that semis run to the U.S. Open. It's shaping up to be a really exciting year for Felix. Yeah. But we can't uh, pump the brakes on that because the excitement continues fresh into this week. Felix and Tsitsipas might get another match this week. Them, along with Andre Rublev, are all competing in the same 250-level ATP event, the Marseille Open 13. That sees uh, Tsitsipas, the number one draw, Rublev, the number two in the tournament, just the same and uh, Felix number three. So he's this time in, he passes half of the draw, which means he could actually see Stefanos, I think, in the third round. So that definitely something to keep an eye on. Maybe the most loaded tournament. Three top 10 players in a 250 event is something to keep an eye on for sure. Uh, the biggest in terms of points this week, though, oh, the Rio 500, which uh, the number one seed in is going to be Matteo Berrettini, his first match, our first tournament since the Australian. Um, him, the number one seed, which is really exciting because, or excuse me, I'll check in on that in a second. The number two seed, Casper Rudd, the Norwegian eighth seed in the world. He's been fantastic on clay as of late. He took seven tournaments in 2021. Uh, and he's already taken another one in 2022. Just this week, he took the Buenos Aires 250 clay event, beating Diego Schwartzman in the finals. And uh, Schwartzman also going to be in this Rio event, them in the same half of the draw. So that's one interesting matchup we might get. The other one, which I don't want to put my foot in my mouth and speak too soon, because that would be embarrassing. But will we see it? Ooh, oh, yes. The excitement lives on. Potentially a third round matchup for this ATP 500 event. It could be Matteo Berrettini facing Carlos Alcaraz, who in the first round of this tournament, after dropping the first set 6-2, or 2-6, excuse me, he wins 6-2 and then 6-1. They played a five-setter against each other at the Australian Open, which was a really fun match. Uh, Alcaraz's rise is definitely something to keep an eye on in the ATP world. This could be a really fun one. Uh, Alcaraz's only title so far in his 18-year-old career, he's 18 years old, he's not been playing in the ATP Tour for 18 years, was on clay last year. Berrettini's serve suffers the most on clay. It's still terrifying, 
Um, he actually has a win over Casper Rudd last year at the Madrid 1000 clay event in the semifinals. He went to the finals, Mateo did, and lost to Zverev. Obviously, he went to the quarters and went five sets against Djokovic at Roland Garros. So don't get me wrong, Mateo, no slouch on the clay. But I do think Alcaraz has a better chance beating him on clay than on grass or hard court. So that could be a really fun matchup as well as uh, the Schwartzman-Rudd rematch. Two more 250 events I want to preview quickly. This one will be quick in Qatar. Denis Shapovalov, the number one seed at the Exxon Mobil Open. Uh, Dennis, a big fan of Dubai, I know, so he loves to compete in these tourneys after a disappointing first round exit last week. Hope to see him make a little more noise at this one. It's been a while since he'd won anything, so that would be a great headline for Canadian tennis if Felix and Dennis could do things in consecutive weeks. They often do. Dennis going to Wimbledon semis and then Felix going to U.S. right after that. Uh, a couple of other seeded players in there. I'll talk a little about that one as it gets underway next pod, hopefully. Last one I want to touch on quickly, Delray Beach, a US 250 event, number one seed Cam Nori, who did get that fat zero out of his uh, W column last week, having a decent run until losing to Felix in Rotterdam. What I love about his seeding is he could see Sebastian Corda, who took him out in the first round at the Australian Open in the third. So that a fun one to keep an eye on. I'll definitely be looking out for. But I think the tournament favorite has to be Riley Opelka, who's coming off winning the Dallas 250 last week. And oh, some of these, like I know he's the big serving American who you only beat if you can overcome his serve. But the stats on his serve in 2022, and especially Dallas, are absurd. He's won 96% of his 150 service games in 2022. In Dallas, he had faced one break point over four matches. <laughs> Serving, I, well, I, can, I actually can count that out. Um, 6, 12, 12 times 4 is 96. Yes. 12 times 4? 48. Is it? No. Yes, you're completely right. You'd have to double it again to get another number. 48. 46, 48 games of tennis on his serve and one break point, which he saved. Also went six for six in shootouts, so didn't drop a set in this Dallas tournament. Uh, the Isner stats were my favorite. They faced each other in the semifinals. Neither American or neither big serving American got a single break point. Both sets went to shootout. <laughs> Just classic uh, what those two are from. So looking for Opelka to continue that ridiculous run, not seeing anyone on his half of the draw who could challenge that serve. And he just doesn't seem to know how to have an off service game, let alone set. So that'll be another fun one. We got a lot of tennis. Um, if nothing else, I might have to do a solo pod just to continue tracking and updating that. Okay. But Maybe uh, Sunday night we'll check in because all of these will be over. We'll figure out the timing. Clear out, 
clear out for Max. He's going to ISO. ISO, eh? Looks like we're ready to segue into basketball. <laughs> it's, I'm I enjoying guess. the tennis, though. I, I'm looking forward to going into these bigger events with, uh, a, I think, a clearer understanding of the tour picture than I've ever had. Nice. Nice. Tennis is growing a new fan here or a new diehard. I'm yeah. like low key thinking if I publish all these segments on the YouTube, when it comes time for national bank open, if I apply for a media pass and I'm like, <laughs> look, I've been talking about every single yeah. ATP draw because it will be in Montreal this shot. year. Yeah. Worth why not? Yeah. Why not? Get so, it out there. Here's to that. Cheers. All right basketball we're gonna do a little whip around action here uh <laughs> friday night Karis lavert goes for 22 points against his former team the indiana pacers the really the main thing i want to touch on is obviously new face in new place uh love to see the debut but the thing that really stood out to me was kind of what i mentioned you put talent together you see what happens and Karis lavert is possibly a ball stopper but when garland isn't on the floor or when Cleveland needs a bucket made. He's a bucket getter, right? And that was something that made the Raptors team that won the championship so successful. It was like one through seven, even one through eight, all guys could at least create something either off the dribble or off ball. And that's something that Karis Silver can do at a high level. And so he was a great shot creator, set up a couple of uh, assists late in that game and really took it over and won it. Uh, obviously, the next night didn't go so well. <laughs> Jared Allen getting pulverized by Joel Embiid on a poster. I don't know if you've seen that one, but that was all over the internet. Um, he can he subsequently gets named an all-star today. Uh, so sorry, Raptors fans, Pascal Siakam. Uh, Jared Allen definitely deserving. I just wish there was another spot for our boy because P-Skills is great. He had another 30-plus point game against Denver. Um on on Saturday night and a tough loss with OG having the opportunity to put in a layup with less than a second and Jokic blocked him. Um, and, and the Raptors go down, the eight-game win streak ends. But this game, I think, has some greater themes as to what we could expect come play in playoffs, whatever, wherever the Raptors end up sitting here. Because the biggest worry that I had personally, and I think generally the fan base had, is we don't have that true center. And so you don't have that true big body, like as an example, an Andre Drummond. It's not not a great center by any means, but you throw a big body six fouls at an Embiid, at a Giannis, at a Vucevic, right? And those are some of the embarrassed in the paint. Yeah, exactly. And a Jared Allen, right? Those are kind of the top, I guess Giannis center-ish, but like the top four teams in the East all have a big guy like that that you probably need a big center to go up against. Um, they much rather would match up against a Miami or a Brooklyn. A Bam? Uh, yeah, just Bam isn't as physically dominant as some of these other centers. Like OG can handle Bam in a way that Not he can't handle an MVP. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was really worried, but the way that they played against Jokic, obviously Jokic had 18 points in the first quarter. But beyond that, after they that. did do a good job being active. He only had three points the rest of the game, like they or until the fourth quarter. Like they did a good job. He's such an incredible passer. Not all centers you're going to go up against are like that. 
So I actually did feel a little bit more confident with the performance and effort they put forth to make Jokic's life difficult uh, as a center who really can control the paint and get a ton of rebounds. They did a much job, better job boxing him out in the second half. Uh, what it makes me feel on the ceiling of this team is, is a team that is going to make one of these contenders first rounds very unpleasant. And you can definitely have it's not necessarily a gimmick, but you can have that identity of five, six, eight dudes that are going to fly at you all the time. I just think over a seven game series, the size and physicality of some of these top contenders is going to win out. So really the projection for me for this Raptors team is a really, really fun first round series, but I really don't expect them to do much beyond that. And that's okay. That's really fun. That's what the Raptors teams had been for many, many years and always had a great time. And it's a growth opportunity for them as well. I know it was a second round exit, but that does kind of take me back to where they were at in the bubble, where just watching them play against the Celtics, it felt like they had to give their all, play their absolute best basketball to make it a contest, to make it a 50-50. And they were able to nudge out a little, but you always felt like the Celtics were the better team. And it was a matter of time before they gained or regained the upper hand. And it was magic moments they could create to make their life just a little bit more miserable. Yeah. So we'll see how the Raptors do tonight against the New Orleans Pelicans, who uh, who... CJ McCollum and Devontae Graham already a nightmare defensively, but hey, at least he can score, right? <laughs> All right, let's move on really quick here. Embiid, I mentioned the monster poster on Jared Allen. Just overall, he had 44, 14, and 10 against 65 combined minutes of Jared Allen and Evelyn, Evan Mobley. Sometimes both of those guys are on the floor at the same time. Like two of the best rim protectors in the league, and Embiid just babied them like like just ridiculous stuff from him and that is when you talk about the Harden Simmons trade again if Harden can be 90% of what he was and be just such on another planet right now that this Philly team instantly goes into the they've got a shot for sure oh, yeah. yeah not to mention Embiid on the second half of the back-to-back -back. like just truly good god what is this mutant that has landed from Mars on our planet. I hope when they do MVP talks in 5, 10, 20 years, it does justice to how ridiculously stupid it is to just pick one at this time. But yeah. right, right. Now, that's what your all NBA teams are for. Yeah. But Embiid on so many guys on a different level, but the way Embiid on a different level takes unstoppable and manifests it in a very yeah. understandable way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's freaky. So fun to watch right now. Another guy uh, who's been fantastic this season, John Morant uh, already had an injury scare earlier in the year and in a blowout, they're just giving Charlotte the business. He uh, lands awkwardly twists his ankle on a cameraman just kind of in the periphery of the court led to a lot of tweets where maybe we should just move everyone back five feet in NBA arenas. Um, I don't know if I want to say it's that extreme, but a really unfortunate incident. And if I'm Memphis, I'm being extra cautious because you do have a bit of a cushion over the rest of the teams in the West, the way that they've been playing and they've already shown that they can win without jaw. So be very careful with him. You don't want to push uh, you really want to have him come playoff time at 100%. And 
those things are just really scary that they come from nothing in a game that you already have well in hand. The Brooklyn Nets continue their losing streak. They're now at 11 games. We don't know when Simmons will play. Kyrie in a bad mood recently. I wouldn't be. I I wouldn't blame him. 11 games in a row. Hard for anyone to be in a good mood, but. Their losing streak continues. They got to get things going if they want to make it out of the play-in game. I I saw on Reddit that he is going to play in like less than a third of their remaining games. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't know, man. I think it'd be pretty fun if the Raptors and Nets played in a 7-8 play-in game and he couldn't play. Yeah, well, that's uh, that was some tweets I was seeing, like about potential scenarios that see like the Nets have both their playing games involve him, Kyrie, unable to play. Yeah, yeah. We, we, I mean, I guess that's just kind of how playoffs work. But a lot of memories of like Brooklyn playoff matchups, like that was Toronto's yeah. first oh, yeah. playoff matchup. That was it was a fun throwback when we thrashed them in the bubble to those other playoff matchups we've had against them. Uh, it feels like we're in a new era of the team and only be appropriate to kick that off with a Nets playoff matchup. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Last check in here. The Sacramento Kings are two. No in the Demonis Sabonis era. They are playing with more energy. It's, it's going better than I expected. It's them and the Pelicans really in that race for the 10 seed at this point. And um, yeah, cool to see sometimes just getting a new guy in reinvigorates a team. Uh, Obviously there was some clash in terms of personalities on both sides in Indiana and in Sacramento. So um, they're getting that little boost of having a new squad together and and putting in that effort. I still don't think it's super sustainable and I am going to stay on that side of the fence, but we will see them in action tonight. Uh, and and see what they can do from there against the Brooklyn Nets, <laughs> who are off to a thirty to thirteen lead. So maybe not a good sign for Sacramento, but we shall see. All right, last thing here: LeBron James becomes the all-time scorer in NBA history uh, in terms of playoffs plus regular season. This isn't the significant one of regular season points where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar holds the thirty-eight thousand plateau by himself but overall the games that he's played that's not including the one play-in game too that the lakers played that uh doesn't count to these scoring totals but lebron james in totality has scored the most points by an nba player ever and it's simply remarkable uh 180 less games played than kareem abdul jabbar for him to get there and a guy who's averaged 27, 7, and 7 over his entire career has never actually had that line in a game, which is ridiculous to think about as well. Just, I know it's fun to hate the Lakers. I know it's fun to hate LeBron. Uh, really easy to make fun of them. But appreciate the greatness while it's here. Like, no matter how much you can hate on a guy, the production speaks for itself. You don't score 48,000 points by always getting calls and always like there has to be a pretty high level of skill involved and durability to do a night after night. So that's the part that you really have to appreciate as someone who's done it at such a high level for so long. Yeah. So that's going to do it for basketball here. We'll wrap it up with a little bit of hockey. I know we've taken a break from it uh, in, in recent weeks and I got to say 
not as familiar with the league as I would like at this point in the season, but just looking at paper, the trade that came through the pipe today is, is going to hopefully kick off an electric trade deadline. The Calgary Flames go ahead and acquire Tyler Toffoli. And this comes right on the heels of a game where I said the Calgary Flames bullied the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, they don't have to change a single piece off their current roster. They give up a f- top 10 first protected pick. Um, I mean, that'll likely convey with the way that they're playing. They give up a third. They give up uh, Heinemann and I believe Tyler Pitlick as well going to Montreal for Tyler Toffoli. And I think it's a great trade for both sides, frankly. Um, Tyler Toffoli on a great contract, still two more years. So they have that control. It's not just a rental and he can score with the best of them. I think he's instantly going to become more productive on this Flames team that has a lot of talent. And on the other side, the Canadians, right? They're blowing it up. So why not sell uh, Ben Sherratt getting injured early in the week? Uh, Elliot Friedman on 32 Thoughts saying that likely had a little bit to do with them selling earlier before the trade deadline. You don't want to see any other of your assets go down injured and, and make them untradeable. So they get a ton for Tyler Toffoli. I think it's a really good haul for them. A first in a pretty deep draft, a third round pick, and then two prospects. Not some of Calgary's top prospects, but it does kind of set the uh, set the market now. It looks like for sure the Leafs are going to lose that first round pick if they want to move anything. Because if Tyler Toffoli's asking for a first and third plus prospects, it's setting the bar pretty high for what value things are going to have for contenders come trade deadline. Man, after giving up the first for uh, friggin' Felino, yeah, last year I'm I'm not and a too... second for Placanics years before that. Yeah, I, I'm not too high on that idea for the Leafs right now, unless it's really appealing. But this Defoli trade makes a ton of sense. A guy his age at his point in career has no business being associated with the Montreal Canadiens. And like he's not on one of those eight-year, eight million dollar. Okay, you made no. it to 28, scoring lots of goals. Here's your reward. You're gonna be 34 years old, useless and making eight million dollar contracts. He's on a win-now contract, so he needs to be moved to a win-now team. I don't know stylistically. I, I like you, really wish I could talk more in depth with more detail about the NHL season. Maybe Daryl Sutter has um, gone under a drastic ideological change about the game of hockey but off the top of my head there does seem to be a bit of a clash in a player like Toffoli and a coach like Sutter um but you could say the same about Johnny Gaudreau uh, who seems to have found his place within the system so there's certainly hope for that you could say the same about a Jeff Carter for that matter um so I it's been made to work before and i'm not saying it's impossible to make work um in prospect a good grindy team getting a score always a threatening thing to fully just adds tangible value wherever he's going to be yeah yeah it's a great move uh but i think it pales in comparison to probably the biggest move here before the deadline and and not a trade not a free agent signing but the vegas golden knights Put Mark Stone on LTIR, which frees up you-know-who, Jack Eichel, to return on Wednesday against the Colorado Avalanche. He is finally back. He's ready to go. 
Petrangelo says he looks great. The coaching staff says he looks great. I will reserve my opinion until the first time he takes a hit. But Jack Eichel is back in the NHL on this loaded Vegas team that continues to just tear apart the Pacific Division. And I cannot wait to watch. That is a game that I will definitely have to tune into on Wednesday because have missed a ton of hockey up until this point. And then the other game to watch is tonight's. The Leafs playing their first ever game against the Seattle Kraken franchise in Seattle. Definitely will have to check that out, see how the jersey combination looks, and hopefully the Leafs can pick up a pair of points against the uh, last place team in the Pacific. That does it for Talking Hockey. That does it for the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you're coming off your Super Bowl hangover, your UFC hangover, your Valentine's Day hangover, whatever it may be, uh, we hope that everyone out there has a fantastic rest of their week and that uh, great things come to you because I'm just feeling good today. (laughs) And I want everyone to experience the love and happiness that I feel spending my time with Max on this podcast. I'm so touched and I'm so upset that I was thinking as soon as you said love and happiness, my mind went to it's my Friday and that's how that makes me feel. (laughs) Sorry, I wasn't thinking about you, bud, but it is my Friday. So sorry about to everyone. It a Monday. Happy Friday to me. I love you too. Oh, sports next door signing out. Oops.